0: Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geberer. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those. Projects, initiatives got off the ground because of the guerra. the eleven Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic team. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in the cover. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut loose. Whoever heard such beautiful words? It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish history soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem. Jewish historian and Hello, guide with Jewish history mm-hmm. sound bites. In this episode, is gonna discuss the life and times of Rabbi Chil Michal Halevi Epstein, more known by his very very famous halachic work, the Aruch HaShulchan, long rabbi of Novarduk, and um, and his place in Jewish history. The book that I use. Anyone who who uh, Studies Daruch HaShulchan today, the last couple of years, is obviously going to be the very well done book called Taroich Lefonai Shulchan in Hebrew by Rabbi Etam Henkin Hashemin Kaim He was tragically killed, he and his wife, in a terrorist attack several years ago when he was 31. He was a young and budding researcher who uh, accomplished. It's quite humbling, actually, to see how much he accomplished in his short life. Uh, enormous amount of writing and essays and halacha and taira and history and, and everything. And he left. He left. Uh, he didn't publish the book. He left. Um, f- you know, files of some of the prepared research, which was taken by my good friend uh, Eliezer Brutt. He was. He was. He he worked on it and added much of his own vast knowledge and research and I guess the book is a collabor collaborative effort between um, Reb Etam Henkin and Eliezer um, Brat and um, it's fantastic, to the best of my knowledge it's not yet translated to English but it should be because it's a great book about the Aruch HaShulchan and to the, as far as I know there is no other great book about the Aruch HaShulchan out there so it's um, it's you know if you if you're curious about um this personality and his life and times then you may want to buy purchase it and read it if you know, if you want to wait till it's um um translated into english then hopefully one day it will be in any event that's what I used for this episode so we have the michael Epstein who's um born in eighteen twenty nine in Babroisk, which is today in Belarus, then was in the Russian Pale of Settlement. And his his um, life trajectory is a pretty, you know, he's standard Litvish, yeshivish for that time, for the 19th century. He grows up in this town, in Breis, which was a fairly large Jewish city. And he um, goes to study in Valazhen for a two years approximately, Reb Itzelah of Alajan, the son of the founder of Reb Chaim V'lazhinar, was the Rosh Hashiva at the time, so this is relatively early on, and he returns to Babroisk, he marries um, the daughter of Reb Yaakov Berlin in Mir, who is the father, of course, of the Nitziv, Reb Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who was later the Rosh Hashiva of Elajan, who was the son-in-law of Reb Itzala of Elajan. So Reb Yaakov Berlin was a Relatively wealthy uh, businessman in Mir, right? The Nitziv was born in Mir, and um, and uh, the Archashulchan marries the Nitziv's sister, the daughter of Rebbe Berlin. Lives for a short time in Mir following his his uh, marriage, and he moves back to Bobruisk. By the way, just so we get things a little more confusing, so so the Nitziv was was the Archeh brother-in-law, and he was also his son-in-law. So, um, like I said, the netziv had married, in his first marriage, the daughter of Reb Yitzel of El-Azhinar, whereas the Archeh had married the sister of the netziv, the daughter of Rebekah of Berlin. But the netziv's first wife passed away, and he marries his niece, the daughter of Shulchan, in other words, the Nitziv's sister's daughter. Um so that's his second marriage, and he has a couple of kids from that marriage. Yaakov Berlin named named for his father, and also Mayor Berlin, later of Mayor Bar-Ilan, um that's the youngest child of the Nitziv. So Mayor Bar-Ilan grows up in his father, the netziv, passed away when he was a child still. So he grows up in his grandfather, the Aruch HaShulchan's house. In fact, Mi Valashin Ad Yerushalayim, the memoir of Meir Bar Ilan, has quite a bit of information um, about the Aruch HaShulchan, about growing up in his home and about uh, how he served as Rabbi of Navardic and everything. So it's very interesting. So the had this close relationship with his brother-in-law and father-in-law, <laughs> the Aruch HaShulchan. Um and the either so either way, after the Aruch Shulchan's marriage to um um to uh I don't remember her name now, but she has a name. Um he, I neglected to put it in my notes, um in in uh, Miss Berlin. And uh he moves back to Babruisk after spending a short time in Mir and he emerges as this young, brilliant scholar and and he has this his mentor, this Rabbi Goldberg, who's also a Talmud of Alushin, who's who is serving as the rabbi in Babruysk at this time. And he be, eventually becomes his assistant, so he's kind of like a assistant rabbi in his hometown of Babruysk. He serves as a dyan on the Besdin in Babruysk uh, for a bunch of years until he is appointed to his first rabbinical position in the town of Novogipkov. Novoshkov, so, so, something along those lines. The question how to pronounce it in, in Russian, in Belarusian, in Yiddish. Each one had their own pronunciation of this town. Either way, it was this town in what's today southern Belarus near the Ukrainian border. It was a. Uh, it's interesting. The Aruch was a real Litvak. Um, of course, came from a very, very Litvish family, studied in Volozhin, marries into Ber- the Berlin family, which is a very Litvish family, was a Litvisher Rav his entire life, but he uh, always had um, a connection to the Hasidic community because Babroisk had a very, very large Hasidic presence. It had a very large Chabad presence and then later Novozhivkov, his first rabbinical position, was an almost entirely Hasidic community. Uh, it was Partly chabad and partly Chernobyl um, in fact, the safer that he published Arlai Yishorem, while he was the rabbi in Nojipkov was he he uh, published Haskamus approbations from the different Chernobyl rabbis in Ukraine um to you know that was the the big rabbis in the area he also had Haskamas from Lithuanian rabbis, but he had from both in any event so he had a close affiliation with the hasidic community throughout his life navardak had a hasidic contingent as well uh, not as prominent as as the novogepkov or brabisk but nevertheless in any event he's the rabbi there from 1864 to 1874 for 10 years and in 1874 he is appointed as the to prestigious position as the rabbi of navarduk which was a large Litvisha town, not far from Mir, not far from Lida, from Radin, Baranovich, all these uh, prominent uh, Jewish cities in the area. So Navardic was a very large and famous and old Jewish town. Um, and previously, uh, uh, they had very prestigious rabbis. Earlier, in fact, one of them was Rebetzal Kulchanan Specter, who was later famous as the Kovnarov. So um, in 1874... Um, he becomes the rabbi and remains there for the rest of his life till his passing in 1908. In other words, for the last 34 years of his life, it's quite a long rabbinical career in general and specifically in his last uh, place in Novartik. In fact, on the trips that I take to Belarus, we very often stop at Novartik and we go up to, up the hill. It's this old old uh, old very today. I mean, still a large town, but it's very. Very poor, the whole area. It's not a small shtetl; it's a large town, not a city either. It's somewhere in between, one of those type of places. And up on a hill is the old Jewish cemetery, and unfortunately, it's been mostly destroyed. There are, you know, random uh, tombstones just lying around there. Unfortunately, between the Nazis and the Soviets, not many Jewish cemeteries in that area survived. And there's this big, large plaque. Of you know dedicated to the Jewish community in Navardik that was wiped out in the Holocaust, and there on there it also specifically notes that the famous rabbi of Navardic was the Epstein, and he was buried here in this cemetery, so we don 't actually have a cover of his that we go to, but the same idea we go and and pay our respects in in, in that way. Now, during his time in Nevardic, he gained world renown. He was very, very prominent as a paisik. He was one of the most important halachic decisors in the whole Russian Empire, in the whole Russian of settlement, was respected as a leader, was very beloved by the Nevardic Jewish community and the surrounding areas. Young Torah scholars would flock to him to get rabbinical ordination. He was known as the Great Masmich, the one who gave out... Uh, smicha to many, many, many of the young aspiring rabbis. So you could have his, his legacy and his influence was felt in generations to come because so many prominent rabbis throughout Russia and even throughout the world, it was an age of immigration, um, uh, received smicha from him. Um, and then uh, we have his written legacy. So there, like I mentioned, Arla Sharm he wrote several others for him as well. There's also chuvas from him, Halachic responsa, but his magnum opus is of course, what his name is, the Arach Hashulchan, which um, was a very, very ambitious um, publishing endeavor and writing. Um, it took him decades to write and even longer to publish, um, both because of financial constraints as well as um, as well as the the czarist Russian censors. But it was a very, very ambitious project because it was uh, he authored it on on all all areas of halacha. In fact, it's hard to find any other. Sefer, halacha, that was written since the time of the Rambam, since the Rambam himself, in other words, which is like, I don't know, 800 years earlier or so, uh, seven 800 years earlier, that was so all-encompassing, um, especially if we include what's sometimes referred to as the Shulchan Aruch Ha'osid, which he also wrote but did not publish, it was published many years after his passing. Um, posthumously, posthumously, however you pronounce it, but well after his passing, um, and the, he never referred to it as the Shulchan Aruch Ha'asid, as far as I know. I'm sorry, Aruch HaShulchan, Aruch Ha'asid. Aruch HaShulchan Aruch Ha'asid, right? Aruch HaShulchan Aruch Ha'asid. He referred to it as additional volumes as Aruch HaShulchan um, in his writings, um, but uh, but uh, the publishers decided when they published it to call it, they referred to it as the Aruch HaShulchan Aruch Ha'asid which covers um, areas of Tyrus and Kutchim and Karbanis and Beis HaMikdash and Tumah and all those areas that are relevant only uh, in Halacha for the time when there is a Beis HaMikdash. But especially, you know, especially if we include that, all those areas of Halacha, but even if not, the fact that he wrote on everything, all the whole area of Chay Shemish, but HaEzer, uh Ezer, uh, Arachayim, Yeridaya and even many other areas that the Shulchan Aruch himself doesn't cover, that only the Rambam covers, um, and uh, and uh, really an, really ambitious, a really an incredible accomplishment in halacha, a historic accomplishment because there's no other uh, uh, multi-volume halachic work since the Rambam that really covers all that. That's that's the that's the that's his. And then he wrote quite a few other svarim as well, which which. Um, some are more, you know. Some have been more popular, republished in in recent years. In any event, um, he he there's in in the book he, he has quite a few interesting chapters that covers different elements of his life, times and legacy. And I want to proceed somewhat chronologically, but zoom in on a few different aspects of his life, which. Henkin and uh, and and Brud um, put put together in the book as as uh, interesting um, highlights, so to speak, of his life. One of them is uh, is a very interesting saga that that either happened or didn't happen, but is part of the story of the Aruch Hashulchan, and that is his legendary meeting with the Tzemach Tzedek of Chabad, the third leader and rebbe of Chabad. Um, Rabbi Nachum Schneerson, the Tzemach Tzedek, the son-in-law of the Mittler Rebbe, the second Rebbe of Chabad, and the grandson of the, the founder of the Chabad dynasty, the Alter Rebbe of Balatanya. So the Tzemach Tzedek was one of the undisputed leaders of Russian Jewry during the mid 19th century. Very, very prominent and important leader, and really in every respect in rabbinical leadership in in the changing modern times in dealing with the Tsarist government. And all that entailed, and in psak and halacha and chasidus and, and, and leadership and everything. The tzemach tzedek is a fascinating story in his own merit. And when um, when the aruch haShulchan was appointed rabbi of Novozybkov, it was like I said, 1864. So this was shortly before the passing of the tzemach tzedek, who passed away in 1866, less than two years later. And in his last years, he was quite quite sick. He was ill. He Almost did not meet with people. He was uh, was unable to. He was very weak, um, so he was um, you know secluded the tzemach tzedek. So you know the fact that the aruch HaShulchan was able to meet with him at this time um, was something special. And he was encouraged to do so by his Hasidic uh, the Hasidic members of his community. So the the uh, the um, the t- to go to Lubavitch, which is not that far from uh, Novosibirskov, and um, and to and to meet with the tzemach tzedek. So. How do we have this story and what's the whole dispute about this story is that the main source of the story is told by his son, the Archa son, the Teirer Tamima, the Reb Halevi Epstein, who writes about it in his memoir. He wrote a four-volume memoir, the Makar Baruch. Now, this is a, a very, very famous memoir. Um, he wrote it in, I think, the 1920s and 30s. Um, in, in stages, and volume three is ostensibly about his father, but about a good chunk of the whole volume is about this meeting with the tze- that his father had with the Tzemach Tzedek. In other words, it's like it it like overwhelms almost everything else that happened in the life in through the, in in the Makar Baruch's eyes. Uh, he describes this meeting with the Tzemach Tzedek, and according to the Makar Baruch, he spent like uh, well over a month there. Um, in Lubavitch, and he met with the Tzemach Tzedek every single day, and they spoke for hours and hours, and they covered literally every topic under the sun, both in Torah and in leadership and in rabbinics and in history, and they discussed everything, and the Makar Baruch has dialogue. He literally has, in quotation marks, dialogue, what they said and how they said it, and he describes, you know, facial expressions, like incredible detail, which... Um, you know, is part of the question as the authenticity of the whole tale. So uh, many have cast doubts as to um, the authenticity, the veracity of the account that the Makar Baruch has in general about all his memoirs. Um, and some have been more extreme in expressing their doubts at what he says there, and others have been more accepting of the stories brought out in the Makar Baruch. Um, there was a famous uh, Lubavitch um, researcher, very important and prestigious researcher, who wrote incredible works and books and essays, Rabbi Yeshua manshain of Blessed Memory, and he was very, very sharply um, critical of the whole Makar Baruch. He He scoffed at anyone who relied on the Makar Baruch as a source for anything. He said he made up everything. It's all hogwash and all made up and ridiculous, and how can you rely on the Makar Baruch for anything, and and it's a completely unreliable source. And specifically he takes apart, he unpacks this whole meeting with the tzemach Tzedek, and he says it was Lahayevila Nivra, it never happened. It the, the whole thing is a figment of the imagination of Rabarak Epstein that his father met with the tzemach Tzedek. and he gives a long litany of reasons why it can't be that it is so. So, you know, with all due respect to Bashua Manchein, and I greatly respect him, I read his books and I love his research but it seems unlikely that he would completely make it up. Uh, Makar Baruch exaggerates lots of things and changes details and is inaccurate in many things, but to completely make up something that he spends literally like 200 pages on in in his memoir seems a bit far-fetched. And Henkin goes with this approach as well, that the meeting definitely did take place, but it seems like um, the Me'kar Baruch himself uh, knew that he was exaggerating it because, it, you know, it, it's it, it's ludicrous to say that 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 the that, that Epstein, when his father told him the story of his meeting with the Temach obviously the Me'kar Baruch himself was not there. He wasn't present when they met with the But um but uh but uh, his father told it to him many years later. So it's, it's unlikely, and it's ludicrous to think, that the the told his son the exact conversations that took place over a month, the exact wording and the exact facial expressions and hand motions, and, and, and the Makar remembered every single word that his father said, and Thirty years later, when he's writing his memoirs, remembered everything exactly and perfectly, and wrote down word for word what the old dialogue was. So, it's unlikely that even he himself believed that. So, he was using literary license, we'll say, and 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 you know everyone has a right to use literary license and to to make his book more interesting and to make it more more fun to read and and exciting and it's dialogue and it's schmoozing and he's. You know, adding on expression, and which is fine. I mean, as long as you understand that you have to take everything with a grain of salt. So that's that's we, we have to qualify what it says in the Makar Baruch, specifically regarding the meeting of the Tzemach Tzedek and the Aruch HaShulchan. Um, but uh, it, you know, it, it seems that the meeting did take place. It probably wasn't a month long. It was probably two weeks that he was in Lubavitch. And even during those two weeks, he probably didn't meet with the Tzemach every day, he probably met him a few times, and they definitely discussed Tyra, and they definitely discussed um, all kinds of other topics. Um, there's a, a whole dispute, and Munshine makes a big ASIC out of this, about what did the Tzemach say about the Vilna So Henkin and other researchers go with a, with with a much more qualified version that um, he probably said the Vilna Goyen was a great tzaddik, which you know we knew even before the Tzamach Tzaddik said so. So, but the Makar Baruch himself writes a much more flowery uh, version of it. He basically says that the Vilna Goyen saved Hasidus, and uh, and without the Vilna Gaon's against Hasidus, then then Hasidus would have gone uh, way out of control, and unlikely that the Tzamach Tzaddik would have said that, but it's very likely that the Makar Baruch wanted that to be said and published because this was a classic. Um, it's in you have this very something very similar in Zichron Yaakov of Yaakov Lifshitz in the in the in the late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries, the religious community is on the defensive. The secularization is the biggest threat to religious existence, and it didn't matter so much whether one was a Chassid or a misnagid. And there was a lot of apologetics going on to to bring about a unification, to close ranks, so to speak, among the religious community at that time. So you know, everyone helped each other. The Hasidim infused Yiddishkeit with a new a new uh, a new uh, and a new excitement, a new vitality, and 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 and, and uh, you know, uh, meaning and the and the and the. Misnagdim helped Chassidus by putting them in Cherem because that's what saved Chassidus and everyone lives happily ever after. And now we're all united against secularization. That was basically the theme in the early 20th century. This is the time of Gurdas Yisrael where we have to unify orthodoxy all over against all the secularist elements and the challenges of modernity. So there was a lot of apologetics going on. So it makes sense that things like that would be published. Um, um, whether you know whether the tzemach actually said that is doubtful. So that's one interesting story of the Aruch Hashulchan's life that he went to go ahead and meet the great Rebbe the Temuchteik, and the two of them having these very interesting conversations. There's another chapter in the book that discusses the Arach HaShulchan and his stance on Zionism. So I got to be honest, when I first bought the book, I got very excited because it's always exciting to hear, you know, what chidushim there would be about Zionism and, and Arach HaShulchan. And to be quite frank, that chapter was a little bit boring because um, the Arach was anti-Zionist. Well, okay, whoopee do. many rabbis were, and uh, it's not not much of a chidush there, right? Um, in, and he was for the very generic reasons, like pretty much like everyone else, that it was head by very secular people and it was going to be very secularist in nature. And therefore, it's going to be uh, it's not good to have the secularization like everything else that was secularization at that time, which was a very mainstream position. The reason Henkin, I think uh, he expresses as such. Is 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 brings brings out this point is because one would ex- have expected different from the Aruch Hashulchan because a lot of people in his orbit were much more accepting of the Chibas Zion and later the Zionist movement. For instance, his brother-in-law slash son-in-law, the Netziv, was one of the leaders of the Chayvav Etzion. was one of the leaders of the Chayvav movement, which was a proto-Zionist. You know, uh with building the settlements of the first Aliyah and uh and leading that that he was one of the Gaboim, he was one of the heads of it. He wrote a lot in support of it. So then it's who Dara HaShulchan was very close with, was very publicly supportive. And here it may be surprising that the uh was less so. Um his the one of his closest students was Rabbi Hudeleb Fishman Maimon, who was the heads of Mizrahi. Um Ridar grandson was Mayor Barilan, the head of the Mizrahi. So all these people grew up and were students of the the Arach Shulchan and and were very prominent religious Zionists and his brother-in-law, the Nitziv, and other people like that. So therefore, Henkin finds it surprising that the Arach was still an opponent. so uh, so okay so you know a lot of these things are nuanced and the Aruch Hashulchan was definitely pro the Yishuv in in Eretz Yisrael and and he there's, there's all kinds of things that he was supportive of fundraising for the settlement there and the and uh, and and all the halacha considerations and using a sragim from from uh, Eretz Yisrael and things like that um, but um, as far as the political Zionist movement he was um, not enthusiastic to say the least the. What I found to be one of the most interesting stories of the Aruch life was his relationship to both the Musser movement in general and specifically with the very famous yeshiva in his own town, the Navardic yeshiva of Rabbi Yosef Horowitz, the Alter of Navardic, which was known as the most radical form of the Musser movement. And what was the, the Aruch relationship with them? The Aruch Hashulchan is not part of the Muslim movement. He's an old school Litvak rabbinical establishment Valachener, um, and he he's not related to the Muslim movement whatsoever. So, what was his relationship with it? So in fact, he finds himself right in the middle of the controversy because when the Pul Musa the dispute and the opposition uh, regarding the Muslim movement breaks out in 1897. It breaks out in Novardok, or in actually, about Novardok more, because of the opening of the Novardok yeshiva of Rebbez of Yaizl and later it spreads back to Jamut to to uh, Slabotka, and the splitting of the Slabodka yeshiva, and there's a big dispute on the pages of Hamelitz newspaper of many rabbis signing against the Musser movement, and then many ra- rabbis signing for the Musser movement, and. The Ar Hashulchan is actually one of the rabbis who sign to defend the Musser movement against the ones who were opposed to it. So it's very interesting. So he and many, many other rabbis, and he, in fact, he's one of the main ones who speaks out in favor of it. He may not be, um, he may not have been a student of Rabbi Shmuel and he may not have subscribed to the Musr movement personally, but he didn't see anything wrong with it, and he writes clearly in that letter that he. Uh, in support of it, that he says they're only doing good things, they're only doing wonderful things. He writes very positively about it, and he and pretty sharply worded uh, against the rabbis who were opposed. Very, very sharp, actually, and almost uncharacteristically sharp about the rabbis of Abba uh, R- 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 Burstein, the rabbi of Tavrig, Tavrig um, who 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 was a one of the leading um, opponents of the Muslim movement, and the Aruch Hashulchan is writes a very sharply worded letter against him. Um, how how can you be opposed to it? And it's terrible. It's a disgrace what you're doing. And uh, very very um, very much defending the Muslim movement, but even. More interesting is his spe- his specific relationship with Navardic Yeshiva. Rabyez of Horovitz, the author Navardik was considered the greatest radical of the Musar movement, the radical Musar of Navardic And I think I had an episode about Navardic in the past. I I don't remember. I think I did. If not, I should. Maybe even maybe even if I did, we should have more. It's such a fascinating story, Navardik. And um Rabyes of himself and his personal life. Um, he experienced all kinds of controversy because of his aesthetic practices and his isolation from society in the forests outside of Kovna um, for a period of several years. And he was considered a, someone who was very extreme in his behavior and his educational philosophy and in what he wanted to implement as the Musser policy in, in the education of his yeshiva, in the curriculum in the yeshiva. And here he establishes the yeshiva in Navardic. And it has to be with the support of both townspeople, the townspeople's leadership, and the rabbi. And and in fact, he does. And the Arach HaShulchan held Rabbi in very high esteem. And the fact that, that the Novartic Yeshiva was successful and grew and flourished during those early years was because of the Arach I think this is an unknown aspect of the history of Navardic, that the gave his full backing, not only to the yeshiva, but also to the personality of the altar, of Rabbi Horowitz, and he was very impressed with him. And the Arach HaShulchan, in fact, took responsibility of the yeshiva. He fundraised for the yeshiva. The townspeople of navardak welcomed the yeshiva. They took care of it. They themselves came up with a lot of the funding that the yeshiva needed in those early years, um, helping them with the building, helping them with the fundraising, with the food, um, housing the students of the navardak yeshiva um, which is relatively small in the beginning, and partly it was married students as well. There was a kylul in the early years of uh, Novartic too, and um, and the and the um, the, um, the even delivered shiurim in Novartic yeshiva from time to time. It was almost like it was his yeshiva, and Yisrael Haravitz had this arrangement that the aruch one was was basically overseeing it and in charge. In fact, the mashgiach uh, in the early years. Um, uh, uh, the first decade or so of the existence of Navardic was Rabeliot Doiv Berkovsky, who was very close with the Aruch from Valazhin, and, and the, the, that was more of the Aruch uh, staff member, meaning he was he came from that end and it was more of his type. And in fact, what Henkin shows in this chapter is very fascinating, is that all of the sources that describe um, the extremism of the of of navardic and their style in musser and the interesting and, and and somewhat um eclectic practices uh, of of the navardic style musser and almost all of them he shows how they came from much later periods in time either from interwar poland when there was many many branches of navardic across poland and even beyond the baltic states as well or from the later years of the Altar of Novartik, way after the passing of uh, of, uh, of the Archa Shulchan, um way after 1908. Um, some, some of them are in the last years of the Archa Shulchan's life, after the 1905 revolution, a uh, failed revolution in Russia, which greatly impacted the Altar of Novartic's educational philosophy. He copied a lot of of the revolutionary activities of the youth from the 1995 revolution and basically implemented them in his in his Muser yeshiva, which is a great paradox uh, of of uh, of Navardic. and um, and uh, or, so it was either in the last years of the aruch life when he was already elderly and and not so well, or it was afterwards. It was it was in the last years before World War One, or it was even during World War One when when the uh, altar left Novartik altogether and were in hummel and later in Kiev. And they opened branches all over Russia during, uh, during and after World War I, during the years of the revolution, the civil war, until the passing of the Alter Nevardekh in 1920, and then his son Rabbi Rami Yafen, um, you know, smuggles everyone over to uh, to uh, to Poland um, for the interwar period. But um, but but during the early years of Nevardic, it was almost like a mainstream yeshiva. We see that in, in letters that the, uh, that the that the um, that the that the wrote. He describes the yeshiva. He describes his relationship with the yeshiva. You know, he says they're learning like every other yeshiva, and you know, they have a half hour of musr uh, every day, which is, which, is, uh, which is standard for musr yeshivas, but nothing more than that. And, um, and, and not only that, but many of the students who came to study in the during the early years came to do so because of the Archa Shulchan. In other words, they came because they wanted to learn halacha, and they wanted to become a rabbi, so they wanted to have smicha from the Archa Shulchan, so they came to study in the yeshiva for half a year, a year, two years in order to be tested uh, uh, by the aruch so you had a lot of these kind of like mainstream aspiring uh, rabbis who were coming to study in because of the hope in the hope that they would receive smicha from the aruch So the influence of the aruch in the earlier in Novardik was, you know, arguably greater than that of the altar of Novardik. Or maybe we'll say differently. We'll say that the. Alter of Novarduk himself didn't implement um, the the what 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 uh, what Navardic later became renowned for. It's certain radicalism, certain extremism, a certain uh, um, uh, different kind of Muster philosophy that the that the uh, that the Alter had and became famous for was only implemented later on, not during the years of the lifetime when he was kind of like this tempering influence on the yeshiva. So that's a very fascinating story. Another story of the life is the publication of his Sefer, his Magnum Opus to Aruch HaShulchan, which I mentioned before, which is this ambitious, ambitious project, multi-volume, covering every single area of halacha, and uh, uh, completely, it was modeled somewhat on the style of the lavush um, and of the Shulchan Arach HaRav, the Alter Rebbe, um, and, uh, but it was much much larger in scope. Um, it was covered, like I said, every area of halacha. It also discussed each area each section all the all the all the opinions of the Reshinim and it brings it down to the the so Shulchan also uh, values as a community rabbi, he values the custom of the people, the custom in Litta, the custom that he is he witnessed with his own eyes and and tries to defend the custom whenever possible, even when it 's seemingly against a mainstream psak uh, of Allah he very often would try to uh, defend the custom. Uh, the the prevalent custom among that uh, among the the Jewish communities that he uh, lived in at the time, um, but um, he the, the the main story that that, uh, that I, I'm I'm not a I'm not a big halacha guy so I'm not going to analyze the different psakim in the Aruch Hashulchan itself we'll leave that for the Talmi the around but I, I I find it a very interesting story of how it was published how he went about the publication. He wanted to self-publish. In other words, he wanted to finance the entire publication himself. And that was one reason why it took uh, decades uh, to do, and also a lot of a lot of heartache. It was very, very difficult, really, really challenging. Uh, to He had a brother. The Rashid had a brother who lived in St. Petersburg, outside of the Pale, and uh, he his brother helped him; he tried to get it published in St. Petersburg. His brother tried to get it through the censors quicker in St Petersburg, so he got his assistance there, but um it was published not only in St Petersburg and, and Warsaw and petrokov and, and a bunch of other cities and the main the main problem that he had was financing. The second challenge that he had was the censor the Czarist russian censor um which uh, which was very concerned about. Having the Jews having their independent halacha, especially in the realm of Chayshin mishpat. What do you mean? Chayshin mishpat means that the Jewish uh, ha- rabbis are are you know they're they're they they're saying you know that you can do all these, all these all these monetary law that are against the the law of the land against the czarist law. So because of that, the Aruch Hashulchan had and I think it, I don't think it's in the current publications of the Aruch Hashulchan, but in the first printing of the Aruch Hashulchan. It has a a, a uh, amazing amazing page, introductory page. Um, the first po- volume that he published was the Chaysh Mishpat, which is the problematic volume. You know, it talks about all the monetary law that might potentially clash with Tsarist Russian law, and he has this introductory page that he calls Kovid Melech, in honor of the king, and it's this effusive praise to Tsar Nicholas uh the the uh the second, maybe Tsar Alexander the Third, I don't remember which one it was. Either way, Tsar Alexander the Third and Tsar Nicholas the Second were both awful for the Jews. Talk about the uh the after the assassination of Tsar Alexander the Second, who was relatively more benign, even though no Tsars were really wonderful to the Jews, but but after his assassination, so it's the pogroms in the 1880s and the May laws and all the restrictions on Jewish life and really terrible time for Russian Jewry, these these two czars. And he's writing this, this praise and the czar and he's so wonderful and his laws are so just and everything about him and may he be blessed and his family and his kingdom and, and incredible. And it's so obvious that what the Aruch HaShulchan is doing is that he really wants um, this to be published in his lifetime. He wants many more volumes to be published and he doesn't want the censor to be so strict with him. Unfortunately, it did not work and the censors were still very strict with the Aruch HaShulchan. And he, there's all these stipulations that they forced him to write in that... Obviously, none of this is relevant because Dina Demalchus Adina, the law of the land, is applicable. And obviously, all of this is theoretical. And obviously, this is only applicable in other countries where we don't have such a kind and benevolent ruler like the czar. Or this is only in ancient times when Jews suffered under their kings, but now we live under the czar. So none of these halachas are relevant. And he had to write that literally tens of times throughout the uh, multi-volume sefer of the Arach HaShulchan. So that was the heavy hand of the Russian censor. And it's a very good historical study because since there is this, you know, uh, delayed publication, he publishes it over. 30 years from the 1880s until his passing. And then his daughter uh, continues publishing it for the next. His daughter and his grandson, Romer Barilan, publish it for the next 30, 40 years. They publish many, many more volumes and republish old volumes. And it's a bestseller. Many of them go through several printings and very, very popular. It gains instant popularity. It becomes across the rabbinic world, even far out of Russia, Galicia, Hungary, United States, Israel. It really, you know, really spread in his own lifetime and, Definitely beyond those incredible success, um, but uh, you see uh, throughout the publication about how things change. Uh, their financial situation changes. You see how the censorship changes. At the you know the more liberal censorship later on, and then of course in the later years there's no czar altogether, so they're able to publish out however they want. Um, so that's a very interesting uh, study. Another aspect uh, of of the Aruch Hashulchan is that many. Many um, like to compare the Arach HaShulchan to the Brura, which is the other great halachic work that is published in the exact same years, literally the exact same decades that they're being published at the same time. Um, the Mishnabrura, of course, is of the Chavetz Chayin, And the two farm the two are both on halacha, but they're very, very different in style. First of all, the Arach like I said, covers every single area of halacha, whereas the Mishnabrura is only one section of Shulchan Archa, the Arach but even in that, even in those two, so the Mishnah Berurah never quotes the Ruh HaShulchan. He published uh, his after it was slightly afterwards. But the HaShulchan does occasionally quote the Mishnah Berurah. He quotes him about thirty times, which means that he held him in quite high esteem because the HaShulchan doesn't uh, quote from contemporary sources, um, and he dis- disputes him um, in many on many occasions, and um, and 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 uh, and and, and uh, the different styles. Led to the Mishnah uh, Berurah's popularity because the Mishnah is much clearer, much easier to read. The Mishnah Berurah is written for the masses, where the Aruch HaShulchan is more rabbinic in style. It was written more for Torah scholars, for rabbis, um, and the and the and not for not not as easy to not easy accessible for the masses as the Mishnah Berurah. So that's very interesting to track uh, those two publications and how they play off each other. Another interesting thing that Henkin brings. Um, he cites his great-grandfather, Rabbi Yisif Henkin, um was great Pisik, and a few others. He brings there a few others, but primarily it's his own great-grandfather. He says that the, if there's a dispute between the Mishnabur and the Arach HaShulchan, then one is supposed to paskin like the Arach HaShulchan. Um, he's considered the paisik Ahrein, more than the Mishnaburah, which is an interesting position. Uh, I think others dispute that position. And this is a very good yeshivish topic of the Mishnaburah versus the Aruch Others say because the Aruch was a community rabbi, so he dealt with halacha in a very real and active sense, whereas the Mishnaburah was writing it more as a scholarly individual using the text in the library and not a real halachic questions that he was posed to because he did not serve as a community rabbi, whereas others will say, no, but the Mishnah Brewer was accepted by the Jewish people as the basis of all halacha, at least in Arachayim, because he's not on the other parts of Shulchan Arach like the Arachashulchan is, and that is a dispute that's probably going to go on for eternity. The last thing I want to mention is how um, Henkin brings it in, in one of the uh, one of the appendixes about some of the famous people who received smicha from the Aruch Hashulchan, like I said, he was. So it's part of his legacy. Not only his written legacy, but who he gave smicha to, because many of the great rabbis and Torah scholars and leaders and Paiskim of the next generation received their smicha from him. He has Rebbezzer Zalman Meltsner, Rebbezif Leo Henkin, Reb Chetzkel Reb Chetzkel Abramsky, Reb Shlemya Yisuf Zevin, um, on the Kahanam, and the Panavisherav and many, many, many other rabbis. He has a long list of rabbis there. And one of the most important ones he has is Rav Rav Mitzchak HaKain Kuk. Rav Kuk himself received smicha from before his first rabbinical position um, in Zoymul, later on in Baisk, but the first one was Zoymul. He basically on the way to Zemel, he got smicha from. Meaning they already appointed him as rabbi. He was recognized as a young budding Torah scholar and great paisik, but he didn't officially have a smicha, rabbinical ordination document. So Rav Kook wanted to get one. So he basically got. He, I mean Henkin brings a few versions of the story, but he proves that this is the one that's correct, seemingly, and uh, and uh, and and he says that Rav Kook stopped on the way uh, to get the smicha from um, the Aruch HaShulchan. Not only that. But that is the only smicha that Rav Kook ever got. In other words, this is Rav Kook's smicha. So Rav Kook's rabbinical career and his rabbinical, uh, you know, his title as rabbi comes from the Arach and, and no one else. This is a little bit of the story of the Oricha Shulchan. This is Yudigebra with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Udegebber.com yehuda, for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe. You can and should subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform. Spread the word to your friends and family about Jewish History Soundbites. Leave a rating and if you're and a review if you can to help out the podcast and spread the word. And I hope you enjoyed.